Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Welcome to Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction's official podcast. I'm Razia Iqbal, journalist, broadcaster, and your host for today. On March the 9th, the shortlist for the Winner of Winners Award, which will go to the best of the previous 24 winners of the Bailey Gifford Prize, was announced. The shortlist was chosen by a panel of judges chaired by Jason Cowley and featuring Sarah Churchwell, Shahida Bari and Francis Wilson. Here to tell us more about the shortlisted books are Jason Cowley and Sarah Churchwell. Jason is the editor-in-chief of the New Statesman magazine and Sarah is professor in American literature and chair of public understanding of the humanities at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. Welcome to you both. I'm delighted to be able to speak about these books with you. So Jason, let's start with you. Tell us what the six books are that you have chosen. There were 24 winners and we have six on our shortlist. Craig Brown, one, two, three, four, The Beatles in Time. Wade Davis, Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory and the Conquest of Everest. Barbara Demick, Nothing to Envy, Real Lives in North Korea. Patrick Radden Keith, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Margaret Macmillan, Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, and James Shapiro, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. Quite an extraordinary feat to have to choose uh, six books out of 24 that have already impressed 24 sets of judges. I mean, how, how did you even uh, embark on that? I mean, what, what, was, what, was the, what was the framework that you went into this, this judging process with? Well, we, we had no set framework. We, we, we could only work with what we were given, which were the 24 winners. Um, they're all good books. They're all prize-winning books. And, you know, out my colleagues, the, the other judges, approached the task in different ways. But we were looking for books of um, outstanding literary quality, books that showed some kind of literary intelligence, books that were doing something with form, were innovative in some ways. We were interested in, of course, the quality of the language, how, how a writer told the story, how the writer had embarked upon the project, the depth of research, the rigor, the diligence, and it was it was an extraordinary process, but a very pleasurable one, because there were books that I'd read previously, which I, I read again. There were books on the list that I never thought I'd read, which when I began them, I enjoyed reading them. Books of history, biography, memoir, investigative journalism. So there was great variety. And I think we all read the books in different ways and in different order. I don't know about what Sarah would have to say on that. Yeah, I, I wonder, Sarah, you and I were both judges in 2017 on this prize. I mean, how how different was this process compared to judging a whole set of new books that had not won, not this prize anyway, but had not won anything? You know, it was different and it was more different than I than I had anticipated, if I'm honest, because 
it added both a, a, a layer of pleasure and a real layer of difficulty in that, as Jason says, I mean, these books are all, by definition, excellent. I mean, they all went through a, a really rigorous process of the type that you and I went through, you know, in the first time around. And so the um what makes it what makes it really pleasurable is that is that you know there just aren't any duds right you're not reading any books where you think oh why did that one get put forward they're all excellent and you can see why the judges chose them um in their year and that of course is the challenge then is that you've got 24 books that are all excellent on their merits and trying to in a you know reasonably fair and consistent way uh, uh sift through different kinds of excellence is actually really difficult where you're where you're weighing off as Jason said different kinds of styles different approaches different questions so that you know they're not trying to do the same thing and you want to judge them on what they were trying to do and how well they did it and then judge them against each other and so it is it is really really challenging but um but definitely an enjoyable and incredibly educational process well that that's wonderful to hear i mean obviously the 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 hardest of all the decisions that you have made to date will be choosing a winner out of those six uh, let's start with um the first that you mentioned on the list uh, jason craig brown which is you know you would think that there is really nothing more interesting to say or new perhaps new is the right word um, about the Beatles and and yet he manages to to do this extraordinary thing of making it not just entertaining and brilliantly written and funny but he he tells us really wonderful stories about the Beatles and the people who have loved them. He does. Um, I, I for one, didn't think I ever wanted to read another book about the Beatles or indeed a long article about the Beatles. I grew up in a household as a young young boy in the in the 1970s, my father was a, a Beatles fan, so the Beatles music was playing all the time. And inevitably, one one kind of turns away sometimes from one's parents' musical choices. And I embraced uh, other other forms of music. And you know, I was not a, a product of the late 60s, although I was born in the late 60s. That wasn't my time, as it were. And I'm not as interested in the Beatles as clearly Craig Brown is, who's who's older than me and absolutely adores them. And in many ways, Craig's book is a fan's biography, but it's, it's so much more than that. And what I, what I like so much about it is it's an experiment in form and he subverts the form of the biography in strange and innovative and witty ways. And, you know, he tells the story of the Beatles through vignettes, um, little news snippets, strange mini biographies, um, he explores social class. He explores the politics of the 1960s. So it's as mu much a book about the social atmosphere of England at that time as it is a book about those four guys that we know who became the Beatles. It's also a book about chance. And Craig Brown is a, is a very sophisticated and witty writer. And there's great sophistication and wit in the writing and in the prose. And it's a it's a very enjoyable read as well. I mean, I, I think you could share this book with anyone interested in in good writing, and they would they would enjoy it. it. Has a dark undercurrent, of course, because the story of the Beatles is in some ways a journey from light to, towards towards a kind of darkness. And there's obviously the the suicide of of of, of Brian Epstein right at, right right at the centre of the book, which actually Brown writes about 
in different ways throughout. And another another um, important feature of the book is it's actually an experiment in time as well. He moves back and forward in time. He subverts. He repeats. He returns. And um, it's a book that really did surprise me. Let's turn to Patrick Radden Keefe's Empire of Pain, which is the most recent winner on the, the list. This is a book that uh, originated from a very long piece in The New Yorker. Uh, Radden Keefe is a, is a staff writer on The New Yorker magazine and, and it addresses the origins of the opioid crisis and not just the, the, the effects of it and how it continues to reverberate, but the Sackler family at the heart of um, the, the drug that has created the opioid crisis. Uh, we, we know, we think we know an awful lot about the opioid crisis, Sarah, but what, what, what about this book made you think it has to be in this list? Mm. Well, it's just that. It's that I went into it thinking I know an awful lot about this and, um, and, and thinking that I was going to know broadly what happened in it and, um, and, and the story that he was going to tell, and I absolutely didn't. And it's an, it's an extraordinary feat of investigative reporting. Um, and, and it's also it's a, it's a social and cultural history of America in the second half of the 20th century told from, from a really different viewpoint, not really a story of addiction as such, but a story about um, consumer culture, a story about uh, um, monopoly capitalism, really, um, about, you know, the kind of second coming of the robber barons. You know, this is, you, you could be re reading about Gilded Age monopoly financiers of the late 19th century um, at some points in the story. And, um, and, and it's just a gripping read. So there's this way in which everything is at stake. It's telling you all kinds of things you didn't know. There's a really, really interesting dynastic family biography at the heart of it. It's also a story about what wealth does to people, about second generation wealth. And with all of those stories that may or may not have some levels of familiarity, um, Radden Keefe keeps finding new things to say about that and, and keeps the story gripping and surprising. And by the end of it, I, th I went into it not liking the Sacklers and I came out of it loathing them to a degree that I, I think is... Um, is a really important part of what the book wants to do because it is also, a, 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 not to sound too pious, but it's a moral exploration of you know the uses and misuses of power and the um, the fact that the that Sackler's you know um, uh, legacy continues around the world is something that Radden Keefe you know uh, really delves into in the book and so it, this is not a story that's over it's not a story where the consequences are finished and we can you know consign it to the dustbins of history this is living all around us and it and it in, it entails us making choices after we finish reading this book. Jason, as a as a journalist yourself, I mean, I I felt that this is a really important book. Couldn't be more different to Craig Brown's. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Radden Keith is a master of the the the, the long form uh, narrative report, you know, classically American magazine style journalism. But he's he's much more than that. I mean, he can also write um, extraordinary books, as he has before Northern Ireland and and the Troubles. And Sarah's right, this book has great kind of moral power, it has great political power, but it's also a feat of storytelling. It's an astonishingly compulsive book. It's very long, but it doesn't feel long when you're reading it because you're, you're utterly gripped by the power of the storytelling and the way he crafts and shapes the story. And it is also the story of this great family, the Sacklers, and it begins by telling the story of the three brothers, Arthur, Mortimer and Raymond, 
and how they rose, you know, combining medicine, advertising, pharmaceuticals, painkillers to, to acquire the power and the wealth that they did. And above all else, the Sacklers were interested in burnishing their name. The father of the three brothers said to them, what matters most of all is to have a good name. And they used, they used their power and the wealth to, to sponsor art galleries and philanthropy aggressively was used to promote their name, to burnish their name, to smooth their access into high society. And Patrick Radden Keith absolutely demolishes the family name. He shatters it, he destroys it. The book is an indictment of a particular kind of capitalism and it has awesome power, I think. Mm, it re- it really is quite a quite an achievement. Let's stay with uh, an, uh, a book written by another journalist, uh, Barbara Demick, uh, American foreign correspondent um, for the Los Angeles Times for a very long time. Her book, Nothing to Envy, is uh, quite different to Radden Keefe's, um, given that they both come from journalists who are interested in in the long form of of narrative nonfiction. Th- th- this is about a a country that none of us really know a great deal about and and Barbara manages from speaking to a hundred people who have all defected from the same place and the stories she tells about their lives really helps us understand something about North Korea that that we didn't know before. Sarah what did you make of Barbara's book? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't just tell me something I didn't know about North Korea before. It tells me everything I didn't know about North Korea before. Because, of course, it is one of the countries that is, that is you know, most shrouded in secrecy. And, um, and so the, 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 her approach is, is really clever, um, in my view. She um, interviews um, uh, people who've escaped from North Korea and are now living in South Korea. And she chooses um, people who've all come from the same small city near the um, northern border with China. And and she chooses it um, deliberately, she explains, because she doesn't want to um, to talk to people from Pyongyang, uh, which is, you know, arguably the most western of North Korea cities, the one that is, you know, available to uh, tourists, at least under very, very controlled um, circumstances. But um, she wanted to talk to people who come from the remote parts of North Korea that the the Western world and Western journalists simply do not see and do not talk to and to understand their stories about what it was like to live in North Korea, particularly during the famine. This is really a book about famine and its effects on families. Um, and the and and each of them has a different relationship to the um, to the North Korean regime. She she's very careful to select people uh, from a from a range of political approaches. So these are by no means all people who you would have expected from childhood to need to leave North Korea. Many of them you know grew up believing that they lived in in the most wonderful country in the world, and eventually um, uh, ended up in South Korea. And she wanted to understand how that happened and to tell these stories, uh, you know, on a really, really human level. And it's a it's another really gripping read in a way that I didn't expect, because 
that what happens is the suspense builds about why each of these um, individuals or sometimes families are going to choose to leave and then how, how are they going to get out? So it becomes a great escape story. Um, you know, what's going to happen to them? Will they make it? What is going to be their route? And, and, and what kind of um, uh, future awaits them? And um, it, it's really an extraordinary book and changed all kinds of preconceptions that, well, what preconceptions I had about North Korea, uh, she overturned all of them. Jason, what about you? I mean, the, the kind of the human stories at the heart of, of this against the backdrop of, of the, the big geopolitics that we think we know a little bit about in terms of North Korea. Did, did, was, was that the thing that, that moved you? Yeah, she actually, you, you're right that she spoke to a lot of people, you know, 100 people, but actually it's a book about six people who she, she focuses in on and tells their stories. Um, six, you know, ordinary Koreans, one of whom is a true believer, believes absolutely in the, the, the Kim dictatorship. But if you, if you look at um, the book, it's set in northeast, the northeast of the country, quite close to the Chinese border. Shangjian is the, is the town, a former fishing village, which was the site of a Japanese steel mill and is known as the City of Iron. So it's an industrial town, particularly badly affected during the famine of the 1990s. And Sarah's right, it is a book about the effects of that devastating famine. But what Demick does so well is it sort of takes you into the country and gives you a great sense of what Hilary Mantel calls the atmospheric pressure of events and what it's like to live inside that regime when you can trust nobody. You can't even trust your husband or wife or your children or, or, or your close family. And it's, it's a surveillance culture and it's a culture of terror and of fear and of brutality and of repression. And she captures all of this very well indeed. The, the, the next three books are, are definitely uh, doorstoppers, really, uh, but also dealing with vast, you know, just the scope of them is quite extraordinary. Sarah, let's talk about Margaret Macmillan's Peacemakers, a, a huge book about the, the Paris Peace Conference in, in 1919, um, six weeks that, that changed the world. What, it's seen as a really interesting revisionist uh, piece of, of, of history uh, writing. What was it that she did that earned her a place on this shortlist? You know, I think Paris 1919 is a, is a really extraordinary book. And, and um, I loved reading it for all kinds of reasons, not least because it's a period that I've spent a lot of time um, researching and reading about myself, usually from a more Americanist perspective. And it... It is, first of all, it's an extraordinary feat of, um, Jason was talking about control, um, of controlling an enormous amount of research and information. Um, it's really a, a story, it's a, it's a story of global history um, in one, in one uh, pivotal year. And it is, I, I, the best way I think to describe what she does in it is actually using what was... Um, one of the uh, titles that the book had in, in, a, in a previous edition, it was, it was also called The Peacemakers. And that's a, a, a scorchingly ironic title, actually, because Macmillan's story is really about how the leaders of, uh, you know, the so-called Great Four, the great leaders um, after the First World War came together with absolutely the best of intentions. They wanted to make peace, but what they did was unravel peace. And she shows how... The, the Treaty of Versailles and the post-war settlement was actually a, um, a, 
the grounds for so much unfolding conflict and the spiraling dissolution of order that came out of the judgments and the misjudgments and the human error. And you you could almost call it a, a, a human comedy if it weren't, if the consequences weren't so tragic. But it does have great moments of comedy. She's a very witty narrator. She is not a particularly self-effacing narrator. And and for me, that's a very important part of reading this book because there's a vast cast of characters. There are all kinds of shifting geopolitical boundaries. It's about shifting geopolitical boundaries. And so you need that sense of somebody with a steady hand at the tiller who's helping you navigate these these turbulent seas. And, and she's witty and she's wise. And you, you know that you're in fairly safe hands. And for me, what's most important about this book is that although it sounds like it's about Europe, um, what she does is as she moves through the story that she's telling, the boundaries keep shifting. It's like concentric circles widening out further and further as you realize that the ripple effect of these decisions are unsettling uh, uh, countries all around the world. And she holds off uh, on the nations that are arguably you know, most consequential for um, the late 20th and early 21st century uh, and thinking about how the Treaty of Versailles affected Asia and the Middle East. And so part of the revisionist project here is to say that this is not just about the, the catastrophic handling of, of uh, Germany's um, post-war settlement, but, but about what happens to all of the other nations that were caught up in the consequences of this conflict. Jason, for for you, how important was it that she kind of holds the hand of the reader in a in a way that that makes this subject, this vast subject, so accessible? Yeah, holding the hand, I don't think is quite quite the right phrase. Actually, it suggests a certain kind of teacherly aspect or didactic aspect, and I, I don't find that in the book at all. Um, what I admire great about greatly about it is its subversive point of view you know, the Raya side. She's a very witty writer, I think, when, particularly when grappling with such a such a grave subject as the First World War, its consequences, and then the effects of the Versailles Peace um, Project. Um, she's brilliant at um, character sketches, really good at um, choosing the right quotation to to capture someone. This is this is this is Lloyd George, for example, on Balfour. He, and this is how he might be remembered by history. He will be just like a scent on a pocket handkerchief, in other words. <laughs> That's brilliant. Just utterly, it? utterly transient. And um, she's very good at she's very good at that. And there's many of them. And I could I could go on for a long time quoting from the book. She's she's she has a she has great political understanding great grasp of the sweep of history. Well, let's, uh, let's turn to uh, another uh, book with huge scope and, and, and also a very long book, Wade Davis, the Canadian anthropologist, uh, Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory and the Conquest of Everest. Uh, Jason, let's stay with you. What, what was it about this book that, that made you think, yep, this is one that I want far more people to read now than when it first came out? Yeah, I remember when he won the prize, actually, I was at the dinner and he gave a very gracious speech, I thought. And therefore, I, I got hold of the book, actually, at the time. But because of its immense size, I, I never got round to reading it. I found I, I, it looked intimidating. And also, although I'm a, I'm a big sports fan, I'm not that interested in mountaineering. And I was never that interested in the whole um, epic quest to reach the summit of Everest, which is the story of the book, actually. 
Um, so it wasn't a book I thought I would naturally enjoy reading, but I was absolutely swept away by it. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an astonishing book in, in so many ways. Um, it tells the story of the three expeditions to, um, to conquer Everest, 1921 to 24. And it tells the story of the 23 climbers at the centre of which is this compelling and glamorous figure, uh, Mallory, who, who dies on the thir third expedition trying to reach the summit. And we still don't quite know, although Davis makes an argument, and I'll leave that for the reader to decide whether he's right, whether Mallory makes it to the summit or not. But his, but his body wasn't found until 1999. So it was a mystery as to what happened to him. But he tells the story of these three expeditions and the 23 climbers who were involved. And all but six of the 23 had seen action as combatants or medics in the First World War. So it's also a book about the catastrophe of the First World War. And for those who had fought in it and survived, and then went on this quest to climb Everest, it becomes a kind of redemptive quest. This sense of noble sacrifice, this sense of heroic failure, as Finton O'Toole calls it, this is kind of deep in the English psyche. And Davis not only tells the story, he interrogates these, 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 these myths, if we can call them myths. And um, the technical detail is fascinating, the prose throughout is fluent and um, it's a book about empire. It's a book about the failures of empire. It's a book about masculinity. What's wrong with masculinity? What's wrong with these men? What's noble about these men? And I found it utterly compelling. It, it it is interesting what he what he does with the subject matter, Sarah, isn't it? That you know the goal. Jason talks about it being about empire. The goal of imperial exploration is seen as an outcome of and a response to the First World War. Absolutely. And I am, I, I, like Jason, I am not somebody who would have picked up a book about mountain climbing uh, in my spare time. Um, and, and I'm not particularly sympathetic to the desire for conquest uh, of, of natural objects. It's not how I view the world. Um, so the, there were ways in which, for me, it was almost an antipathetic kind of a theme. And then um, I also was won over by that, by that um, interest in history and his sense that this desire for conquest um, was absolutely shaped, if not directly, not quite directly catalyzed. They were all climbers before the war. They loved climbing. But the way in which empire and the traumatic aftermath of war combined to make this uh, a, a kind of ide fix, not just for Mallory and the other climbers, but for the nation. And there was this kind of noble redemptive project that, um, that, that everybody got behind. And along the way, Davis then humanizes this, this big story and these big claims by showing us um, in, in, you know, really moving detail, the, the personal experiences of many of these men in war, um, the, you know, he really brings to life the trauma. Many of them are suffering from what today we would we would call PTSD. And he, he gently, you know, suggests without being heavy handed about it that this was a traumatic response for um, many of these men. But we also get the backstory of empire. We get the backstory of of the exploration of um, of the of the region um, and and connecting it to uh, to to British um, uh, you know 
the emphasis on discovery and not just on um, on conquest. And then because he is a, a 21st century uh, writer, he also is sensitive to the, um, the, the interests and the perspectives of the people on the ground, particularly um, the people of Tibet and, um, and indeed the, the religion of Tibet and how um, their understanding of the mountain is uh, at a minimum intention, let's say, um, with the understanding of these, um, of these British men. And so he's shifting among all of these different perspectives, the, the, the backstories of these men at Cambridge, um, many of them, you know, uh, sorry, Oxford and Cambridge, many of them were close friends before the war, then their stories through the war, and then as they come together to try to, to conquer Everest. And so for all of its big, sweeping, epic, vista sort of aspects, it's also a deeply human story from start to finish. And, and, and full of wonderful details, such as the third expedition, the supplies included 60 tins of quail and foie gras and 48 bottles of champagne, which is pretty extraordinary. I mean, I mean, they're climbing Everest in plus fours. And, you know, I mean, it's just really amazing. They go up in a tweed jacket as if they're going for a stroll in Wales, you know. And so the wonder isn't that any of them died. The wonder is that any of them lived to tell the tale. Extraordinary stuff. Uh, so finally, uh, the last book on your shortlist that you have chosen, Sarah, let's talk about James Shapiro's 1599. I, I, again, we're kind of bookending um, this discussion about subjects that there has been so much written about William Shakespeare. What is it that Shapiro does that makes this one stand out and different? So this was one of the books on our 24 that I have read before. In fact, I've read it before more than once. Um, I uh, was already a fan coming into this process. And then it was very interesting to weigh it up against the other 23, um, its its co-winners, and to read it again for the first time in a while. Um, And uh, for me, one of the great pleasures of it was that it held up so very well. Um, And some of the books on rereading, you know, I, I found that I was starting to see things um, that I liked less about them, um, that they maybe had dated a little bit um, or, you know, um, what have you. But 1599 is just remains an extraordinary feat. Um, the thing that I love about it is that it is, an, it is in one sense, um, from first page to last, an educated guess, right? Um, and yet what Shapiro does is show what you can do with an educated guess if your education is extraordinary, if your erudition is deep and profound, and then if your guesswork is subtle and intelligent and modest and, um, and, and, and human, you know? So what he does is, is he takes, because there's, there's, on the one hand, as you say, Shakespeare is, um, you know, one of the most written about subjects in the world, in English, certainly. And yet we know very, very little about Shakespeare's life and about his biography. But rather than, you know, wondering what made Shakespeare leave Stratford or why he married Anne Hathaway, what Shapiro does is focus his uh, attention on a singular pivotal year and tell us everything that is known about that year and then think through the relationship of what is known about that year and deeply intelligent readings of the four major masterpieces that Shakespeare produced in that year, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, Henry V, and Hamlet. 
and think through their relationship to what's happening around Shakespeare so that he shows us not a speculative life of Shakespeare, not what he had for dinner, if Shapiro doesn't know what he had for dinner, but what the political and cultural and religious life around him, the conflicts and the tensions and the changes um, and the, and the t- tensions and the pressures, how they might have informed those plays. And so he moves back and forth between the, the, the really uh, um, you know, incredibly interesting political dramas of Elizabethan England. This is um, the moment when uh, Essex goes to Ireland. And against this backdrop of high political drama, Shapiro um, brings us into these really subtle judicious readings of these very well-known and well-loved plays. And along the way, what he does is, is make you look at these four major plays in different ways. It culminates in a kind of, to me, triumphant reading of Hamlet, where you just suddenly see Hamlet in uh, through a different lens. And it's an endlessly enjoyable kind of journey through Elizabethan England with, you know, uh, uh, the most informed tour guide you're ever going to meet. Jason, did you feel as you were reading it that it was it was revolutionary when it comes to Shakespeare studies? Well, like Sarah, I read it when it was first published. Um, and indeed, when I look back, I chose it as one of my books of the year in 2006. But I hadn't read it since. But at the time, what I what I and then I, of course, I reread it with great pleasure. And it, do, it does stand up. Um, to a second reading, indeed a third reading. Um, what I loved about it at the time was was its freshness. One of the problems with Shakespeare studies is you know so little about Shakespeare. So, so much of it is speculation and conjecture, conjecture and endless um, supposition and, and the asking of questions. But what he does so brilliantly is locate Shakespeare in his time and in a particular period, 1599, unrest, wars, turbulence in Ireland, and the Earl of Essex goes to Ireland. Amazing figure, the Earl of Essex, and Shapiro writes about him so well and so engagingly. Um, The end of the Elizabethan period, 1599, 1603, King James comes down from Scotland, James I of England, 6th of Scotland, and we we have the beginnings of of the Stuart Era. So this is a this is a really pivotal year when so much is coming to an end, and I I I was compelled by that. You know, I'm compelled by the context in which we live, the political and historical context in which we live and work. So you know, I was compelled by that. But what I what I particularly liked the book about the book was its close reading of the plays, not least Ham, uh, not least Hamlet. And there's two wonderful chapters on what Shakespeare does so boldly in Hamlet and the way he uses the soliloquy and how he's been influenced by his reading of Montaigne and of the essay and how he brings the essay, the personal voice of the essay, and brings it into Hamlet and enables Hamlet to... we, We see from the outside the inside, as it were. Hamlet speaks in words what's in his mind and I and Shapiro is extremely good on that and I know Sarah when you and I were talking about this you know we were we were really fascinated by his reading of Hamlet and also his reading of the form of the essay do you think 
Absolutely. And as you say, I mean, for me, one of the great pleasures of the book is, is as I said, the way that it, that it moves back and forth between, you can think of it as, a, you know, we can use the, the metaphor of the camera, right? It zooms into these, to these, you know, beautiful, elegant, judicious, close readings of, the, of these great plays. And then it pans out again to show us what's happening um, all around Shakespeare and how that understanding informs what's happening on the page. And so it's just this beautifully judged uh, um, uh, melding of, of, you know, of text and context, to use the, the academic words for it. Yeah, and also the style, accessible, um, never never seeks to, um, knows a lot, but never, never demonstrates to the reader that he knows too much. So he's never no. condescending, yeah. he's never superior in tone. He wears his learning very lightly, um, but it is steeped in learning. Absolutely, but it's it's not oppressive in any way. And um, he writes a good, clean, fluent English sentence, and it's a pleasure to read. You have both been so wonderful in describing why these books have, have made it onto the shortlist. Thank you so much, Jason Cowley, Sarah Churchwell, for, for joining us today. Um, I, I just want to ask you before you go, I mean, how... How daunted are you by the next stage of your reading? Sarah? I'm really looking forward to it because these are marvellous books that all bear rereading. And so I'm going to give myself the pleasure of rereading them and see which one I think, you know, deserves the laurel. So it's, it's you know, at this point, it's a win-win in kind of every sense from my point of view. We've got wonderful books and, and one of them will make it, uh, will make it to the top. Jason? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it as well. I mean... It's been a great pleasure to chair um, the, the the discussions because you know my fellow judges are, are such are such smart readers and they're so enthusiastic and they've done the work you know they're diligent they're dedicated they speak with great authority and passion about about the books and you know it's a pleasure for me to be in the room and listen to that so our final conversation no doubt we may we may disagree but I do hope ultimately we we settle on a winner that satisfi- satisfies us all. Thank you both so much for, for being with us today. We're also, we'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. Now, to find out more about the Bailey Gifford Prize, you can visit the website or follow us on Twitter at BG Prize. And if this episode has piqued your interest in the history of the prize, you can find a 30-minute documentary on the website. The Winner of Winners Award will be announced on the 27th of April at an event held at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. In the meantime, I'll be talking to each of the shortlisted authors about what's inspired them and what it's like to be in contention for the Winner of Winners Prize. Hope you'll join me again. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.